the issue of curiosity really comes into these models because uh, the question comes how much should the model faithfully replicate the data that it has seen so how much of your experiences in life are supposed to be representative of what you will encounter in the future how much should you really learn from an incident you're listening to WERALP Arlington Virginia 96.7 FM streaming and on demand at wera.fm coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media I'm your host Lynn Borton this is choose to be curious welcome This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Today, I'm curious in a very specific way. Today, we're talking data. I've long been fascinated by this idea of big data, fascinated and frankly a little daunted. It makes intuitive sense to me that we would be able to mine great findings from masses of information but but then the questions start coming what among all that information is relevant how do we know where do you look where's a researcher to begin fortunately for the rest of us data analysts live among us mere mortals and i've got one here with me today dr narain ramakrishnan is director of virginia tech's discovery analytics center based in boston welcome Thank you Len, great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. So let's start with a little bit about the Discovery Analytics Center. The Discovery Analytics Center or DAC as we call it uh, is located in both Blacksburg uh, and in Arlington. Uh, we primarily lead data science research and education at uh, Virginia Tech. Uh, we offer both undergraduate and graduate programs. Uh, we do research in applying uh, data science to problems of national interest in areas like public health sustainability and also defense and intelligence applications and you do that with big data that's sort of your raw material right so just define big data so i am very fond of saying that we were doing big data before big data was big so the definition of big data varies depending on what we what we construe to be big at any particular point in time nowadays we just refer to as as, as uh, data science or machine mm-hmm. learning mm-hmm. and essentially what we mean is uh, using vast quantities of data to try to find patterns and insights into our daily lives into uh, things that we can nowadays take for granted but potentially data can provide us insights into how to optimize it how to make it better and so on and you you do that in a lot of fields but one that you focused on that we we talked about in preparation for this conversation is some of that public health concern and very timely right now flu forecasting so tell me how you forecast the flu yes i mean as a, as a segue to this i should uh, i should probably mention to your audience uh, Uh, it's still not too late to get a flu shot. Oh good, <laughs> so that is good information. If you uh, if you haven't gotten a flu shot, it's uh, it's really useful to get one and follow the usual precautions such as uh, washing your hands and and everything that your doctor tells you. So before we talk about forecasting the flu, it's important to talk about how do you measure the flu? Mm. How do you how do you know how much flu is going on, incidence of flu uh, in your particular uh, city or county? This is really a difficult problem because to know if somebody has a flu you will have to take a respiratory specimen 
and do a virological test and obviously we don't do that for everybody for <laughs> who presents yeah. with symptoms right so instead what uh, public health people do is they have a definition they have a diagnosis called ili which stands for influenza like illness Mm-hmm. and the word like should indicate to you that it's a pretty it's inexact broad, <laughs> very inexact right so what people mean by ili is that if you go to a doctor and you present with fever a temperature of 100 degrees or more and you have uh, some conditions like a sore throat or a cough uh, without a known uh, cause then you're considered to have ili mm-hmm. right and once you, w- only if they take a specimen Uh, from you and do a test they'll know that it's really the flu so when we talk about forecasting the flu we're really talking about forecasting ili now when you go to your uh, uh, local doctor and uh, he or she diagnoses you with ili uh, that information is reported back up to the regional system that gets reported to the states and the states then report to the cdc and that's how cdc knows the number of ili cases in the country mm-hmm. every week one one thing i want to mention is uh, flu forecasting has now become pretty mainstream and scientific uh, if you we were to talk about uh, flu forecasting maybe uh, 10 years back people have, would have given you a look like uh, you're How an astrologer you right. or or a soothsayer <laughs> somebody right <laughs> but uh, but it's become a pretty scientific activity nowadays in fact the cdc conducts an annual uh, no forecasting competition and it's not typically medical data that you all are using in those forecasts is that right correct so if you were to get the most bang for your buck it turns out that physical indicators are actually the best way to predict the flu right because flu is seasonal uh, a lot of information such as uh, weather temperature mm-hmm. humidity go a long way in predicting the flu hmm. uh, but they go only you know so far right you will have to take into account uh, a lot of what we call social indicators uh, to try to forecast the flu now there are many ways to uh, take social indicators so i'll give you the most uh, one of the best examples that that came about in recent years and and this idea came from google uh, what they did was they looked at uh, people typing flu related queries in their oh, search into engine the search in- into uh-huh. the search engine right sure. they don't know who you are but they know that somebody from Arlington is typing a query right having to do with the flu and remember that they have this information across the whole country right so every time somebody types a flu related query they can aggregate that information at the city level at mm-hmm. the county level at the state level and they can develop a model correlating the search engine activity to the ili activity this turned out to be a pretty effective method until a whole bunch of uh, issues came about so for example uh, uh, willy nelson has a concert uh-huh and uh, he cancels the concert because he has the flu oh. uh they're really typing uh, about the flu not so much because they have the flu or they're worried about the flu they're trying to learn about what's like. happening to this concert <laughs> right and so <laughs> you have a lot of queries that are not specific uh-huh to the actual incidence of the flu and you have to find a way to separate them So what happened with with this Google flu trends was it was launched 2008 almost you know 10 years back mm-hmm. and uh, uh it was very effective for a few years but the system very quickly fell out of step when when big data is being used uh, and and the data is fundamentally noisy and you're gathering this data from human activity 
you need to constantly tune and uh, train these models and keep them you know lockstep with what you're modeling and so as a result uh, i'm i'm sad to say google completely shut down the system it doesn't exist anymore oh uh, it currently exists as a nice idea and, and a few papers but mm-hmm. uh, they they stopped the service but this really started this whole trend of people looking for surrogate signals uh-huh in other types of data right so what other data could we be collecting that could potentially be telling us about the flu right so data that was not collected for the flu but maybe they provide some sort of uh, signal that we, one could use so uh, a natural second example that people talked thought about was to look at tweets so if you have the flu you're probably going to tweet saying i have the flu i feel, lousy, I feel right? bad <laughs> i'm not coming to work or or something uh-huh. or or maybe more likely you're not going to tweet at all, all right. if you're a regular tweeter and you have the flu you're going to be silent for for a couple of days and then when you come back you're going to say you know i had the flu i'm now back or something so so people started looking at tweets to try to understand uh, can we look at the volume of tweets that have to do with the flu and then use that to make a forecast twitter was a very was very pioneering in the sense that they they made this api open and so researchers across the world uh, were able to uh, collect tweets and use this information and one one nice thing about all these approaches is that uh, you really not talking about individual data so what what people are really interested in is uh, the volume of activity mm-hmm. about the flu right so you really want to know is it thousands of tweets is it millions of tweets and uh, how does this match to last year's flu season and so on there's still a lot of work because uh, the number of people using twitter this year is not the same as the number of people using twitter last year so just because you saw more tweets doesn't mean there's more flu activity right it could just mean that there are more people talking about it and so on so a lot of the credit for what i'm uh, going to describe goes to my students and my collaborators uh, we looked at very non traditional data sources to try to see if if they could provide some signals uh, into the flu there's a website called open table sure this is the a website for restaurant reservations uh-huh. right so you go you can go to this website and you can reserve uh, tables at restaurants in all major cities now this site is open so what it does is you could go to this site several times in a day and look for uh the number of restaurants that have tables for two mm. and see how many tables are available and you could track this availability over time right and you could look to see if the number of available tables if the increase in availability is correlated with the increase in the flu incidence because uh-huh. uh, the the understanding is that if you have the flu uh, you're likely not going to be venturing out uh, for a dinner or lunch So this was work done uh, with my collaborators at uh, Harvard Medical School and so we uh, polled this site multiple times in a day we fetched this data and uh, we correlated uh, that information with the flu uh, case count and and you uh, found some correlations we found some really strong correlations in specific cities and so on so and and that's what is amazing about this this was data that was not collected for the purpose of tracking anything uh, you know health related but uh, but here you have it uh, you have this information that can you know provide this insight so what i love about this story is the wonderful user to bring curiosity it's like you're redefining ili right you know what are the illness like exactly. indicators right so we've got tweets and restaurant reservations i imagine there are lots of things indeed indeed so uh, so here's a here's a wild or or wacky idea that uh, that you might or might not know of 
So um, we we turn to looking at parking lots of hospitals oh. to try to understand if there is uh, significant flu activity. Now, now this is not as outlandish as it might sound because uh, economists look at uh, how full a parking lot is outside a mall uh, near the Christmas season. They compare it to the previous season and they use that to estimate. Uh, well, the Christmas uh, demand this year is going to be so on, so on, so on. So what we did was we we took the same approach, but we focused on hospitals, and we looked at satellite images of these parking lots, and they, they were collected around noon. Uh, we drew stencils around these parking lots, and we had uh, algorithms that can automatically count the number of cars in these lots, huh. and and we tracked that over time. And so, if you see an early flu season, uh, that will manifest as uh, you know a lot more cars, a lot more uh, you know filled parking lots than uh, you know what you would have for that time of the year. And and again, this type of data is very is very uh, you know what we would call dirty data because there's there's a lot of noise in the data. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes there's cloud cover; you don't see the parking lot. Sometimes there's construction in the parking lot. It's a garage. It's, it's a garage, <laughs> or it's a garage exactly, right? So, uh, but again, when you aggregate this over lots and lots of uh, information, uh, you know, you you get you get a signal that w- could be used to be predictive. So now you have me going. I'm thinking. So what else? When I have the flu or flu-like symptoms, I'm like, all right. There's uh, daytime Netflix viewing exactly, spike. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, now I'm curious. And about that's really, what are the markers? Yeah. So you should you should consciously think about what happens uh, when you're sick and and what signals you might be uh, leaving and and where they are. So so the, this this area is is ripe for uh, lots of creativity, uh, where people can come up with very innovative ways of uh, tracking flu activity. You know, we're very good at sort of selectively crediting information as as a contributing factor that sort of reinforces maybe a position that we have or a belief that we have. So how do you ask your questions and select data, make those choices to avoid falling into that trap? So every every example, um, you know, piece of data that I mentioned is not uh, foolproof. Mm-hmm. The the important thing in uh, in big data and data science here is to understand the selective superiorities of data, to try to understand uh, where you might get carried away, uh, where you might find uh, you know, examples where being overly reliant on one type of data can uh, lead you into a, into a corner, right? Give you a, a blind spot, if you will, uh-huh. right? Uh, trusting one data source a lot more than you, than you should. So uh, what we end up doing is to always rely on multiple sources of data, right? And, o- and often use data to sort of check each other, right? To essentially say, well, I'm seeing this uptick in this data. Do I also see it reflected in this other data? Mm-hmm. And if not, why? Isaac Asimov is credited with this line about the most exciting phrase to hear in, in science is not Eureka, but that's funny. Yes. Yeah, this, this often happens, right? So in data science, when you do find something out of the ordinary. Well, the first thing I tell my students is, please go and check your work again. Uh-huh. You know, because maybe it's maybe <laughs> it's funny because it's an error. Right? Yeah, maybe it's a, it's a simple <laughs> slip or something. But but sometimes you do find uh, things that are uh, not easily explainable mm-hmm. at, at first glance. But then, on on closer examination, it uh, it leads you to think, 
you know maybe there's a different explanation for this uh, for this behavior or phenomenon right and uh, that is sort of the the small data versus big data uh, controversy mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. uh, there's a school of thought that says uh, you really have to uh, know your data intimately right so a lot of people who talk about uh, intuition uh, they're not swayed by big trends or uh, you know fancy models and correlations but they have this intuition right and so if you take an epidemiologist who's modeling the flu he or she might have uh, certain indicators that they follow right and uh, they could be really small pieces of data and they they know how to watch out for upticks and deviations anomalies and so on and they use that to connect to their past and say okay this makes sense this mm-hmm. doesn't make sense and so on uh, but when you throw all of them into a your probable soup mm-hmm. and uh, you sometimes uh, those little nuggets could get lost right right so right. Uh, keeping track of the big picture as well as the small picture so are there algorithms for curiosity are there algorithms for intuition i mean it's like you're trying to bring the human way of making connections into the modeling way of making connections how does that right does that work how does that yeah. work you you hit upon a very uh, very important thread so so the field of computer science that deals with developing models that uh, learn based on data um, we call it machine learning mm-hmm. so there are various types of machine learning right we have terms like supervised learning <laughs> which uh, you know as the name indicates is learning in the presence of a teacher uh-huh. right and then there's obviously unsupervised learning and so on so the the issue of curiosity uh, really comes into these models because uh, the question comes how much should the model faithfully replicate the data that it has seen mm. right so how much of your experiences in life are supposed to be uh, representative of what you will encounter in the future how much should you really learn from an incident i should, would argue you should be constantly learning you should be constantly <laughs> learning right so so one of the trade offs that we uh, that we talk about in our discipline is called uh, exploration versus exploitation So there's a constant struggle between exploration and exploitation because um you have to explore to know what's out there uh, but you can't be constantly exploring because then you're really not learning anything from what you've learned for you've mm-hmm. explored right mm-hmm. uh, but you're to exploit but then you if you keep exploiting you run the risk of not knowing something new that has come about all right so there's a ratio there's a magic ratio there's a magic there ratio right <laughs> so people always uh, in machine learning and and, and all these uh applications they talk about how uh, you should intelligently trade off right so the same thing with machine learning right so we we uh, we look at data we keep uh, learning from uh, what we you know what we observe but every once in a while maybe we'll have to do the uh, you know do something that's not dictated by the data or do something that is that would be considered uh, suboptimal or non-optimal and and maybe that will lead to something that uh, you didn't um, know that existed and and can the algorithms learn that themselves or that's humans in the loop kind of tinkering with the algorithm uh that's a very good question so uh we do have uh we do have algorithms that try to uh, do that automatically uh-huh. in fact that's one of the you know big research issues in, I would in think, my discipline yeah. but certainly there is a segment of uh, my community that believes in human guided machine learning why would you let the machine figure all this out uh, why can't you as a human bring in your 
natural curiosity right. to steer it in directions that you think uh, ought to be explored it's that exploration exploitation trade off whether it's um, uh, directed by a human or it's something that is driven by an algorithm uh, and the more you do that um, the more you can be confident that you have explored the space of possibilities uh, better so another thing that i know that you work with your students a lot on is ethics and i don't know that everybody always thinks ethics and data in quite the way that you all seem to tell me a little bit more about that yeah so thanks <laughs> thanks for mentioning that uh, so i teach a graduate course uh, this semester called ethics and professionalism in data science i have students in computer science and math Uh, from sociology, from urban affairs, planning, and so on. So they come with so uh, you know very different perspectives. I tell them that this is the best time to be studying ethics as a data scientist because every day there is at least one new example of a complete of a company completely violating some you know <laughs> some principle that we hold together right. dear. Right? There's so right. many examples of uh, of large tech companies uh, conducting themselves in what we would consider. Uh, Uh, not, not quite an ethical manner and again going back to this public health example and so on there are a lot of examples of ethical violations right so for instance suppose you're using medical records mm-hmm. uh, to forecast the flu right and medical records contain a lot of information about symptoms and and diagnosis and so on but but there are examples where uh, an employee can employer can find out that an employee is pregnant Uh, before the individual is ready to disclose that information mm. and in fact there are third parties that that actually uh, try to infer this information say so they look at uh, claims data they look at your web searches they can they can correlate the two and they can uh, they can figure out that an individual is either pregnant or trying to get pregnant uh, now this person may not be ready to share that information mm-hmm. with the employer uh, but here you have a very clear ethical violation of the employer coming to know this information and yeah. so we uh, we talk about a lot of uh, instances where uh, data science and machine learning is being used uh, in human decision making right and and understanding the role that these methods can play in either perpetuating um, existing biases or um, uh, situations like that or maybe creating new problems mm-hmm. that uh, that didn't exist right i found uh, just as i as i finished my first class this semester uh, i was uh, browsing on twitter there was this example of of a person uh, getting a quote for insurance on on the web mm. and and this person um, uh, provides uh, all uh, his information his age and health and what not uh, gets a quote and then he submits the same information again but with a different name mm-hmm. okay a name uh, connoting a different uh, uh, nationality or country of origin uh, uh-huh. and, and gets a completely different quote wow right almost $1000 more or something it's really uh, it's really interesting because uh, you know you, you see extremely uh, blatant examples uh, of uh, you know data science being used Uh, in in these types of situations so what we what we do is um, we talk about uh, how can we hold algorithms accountable how can we hold uh, people accountable when they use algorithms in a, a discriminatory uh, fashion and these are uh, these are not solved problems by any means i mean uh, people are encountering new situations <laughs> and and the law definitely hasn't kept up mm-hmm. you know th- i i think this is one of those situations that will definitely uh, get more and more uh, important 
as we go along as we try to understand how uh, data science permeates our lives uh, you know where exactly we are using it or we are we being very conscious about how we are using it uh, and what uh, safeguards should be put in place uh, for this well i really congratulate you for bringing curiosity to those ethical discussions i think there's an weighing the various values that we have as a society and our desire to know but then how that information is used it's fascinating i'm delighted to hear you're doing that well, thank you so much for this, but before you go, are you ready for our big jar of wannabe analogies? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Reach in. Take a slip. I'll take one for me and one for our audience, and we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on that slip, and you can go first or I'll go first. What would you oh, like? Oh, wow. <laughs> Mine says vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <coughs> you ready to talk about how curiosity is like a vacuum cleaner? Curiosity is like a vacuum cleaner. Wow. Well, I'm trying to avoid the obvious metaphors here. <laughs> um, so I, I think curiosity is like a vacuum cleaner because um, they set the stage for you to create something new. Oh, right? yeah. Um, so use a vacuum cleaner to get your home in order uh-huh. and... Of course, it gets into disarray pretty quickly, but maybe in a different direction than uh-huh. what it used to be. Uh, so, um, curiosity can potentially set you uh, in a different direction by just rearranging things that uh, you have uh, you used to have in a particular way, in a particular layout, and uh, uh, rearranging them in a, in a different way, organizing them is uh, potentially one thing that curiosity does for you. Wonderful. Uh, well, you have just reframed vacuuming for me. Thank you. <laughs> now, I, now I get to think of it as a curiosity exercise. That's great. So I have uh, meditation. How is curiosity like meditation? Um, I think they're both about mindfulness and kind of bringing um, a focus to things. Um, meditation is is um, an often more quiet form of that than we think of as curiosity. But I think they're both about actually sort of settling in and paying very deep attention to things. So that's that's nice. an analogy I would make. Nice. And then let's see, for the audience, we have how is curiosity like eating cake? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, let us know. Hashtag analogy. How is curiosity like eating cake? Well, Naren, thank you so much for this. And it's wonderful to know that you all are doing this work. Thank you. Right Lynn. here in Arlington. This was great discussing our work with you. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to WERA LP 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up on this or any of the other great programming here at Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at wera.fm. You can find links to Virginia Tech's Discovery Analytics Center on my Facebook page at Choose to be Curious, as well as related articles on things like machine learning and this curiosity algorithm that I'm so interested in. Check out previous shows on Facebook, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, or iTunes, and I hope you'll follow me on Twitter. Don't forget to send us your eating cake analogy, hashtag analogy. And I hope you'll join us next time when we mark our 50th episode with a celebration of really walking the choose to be curious talk. Spoiler alert, it's equal parts exhilarating and exhausting. Until then, choose to be curious.
Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.